We are living, whether or not J. Edgar Hoover likes it, <laughs> in an age of revolution. There's nothing any of us can do about that, except say no or say yes. Welcome to episode 57 of the I Want to Party with Bob Bobcast, uh, my one-year anniversary, by the way. This is the one-year anniversary of the Bobcast. Yes, indeed. I was going to do something a little different. I had planned something a little different, kind of shifted gears. I had kind of this big extravaganza, one-year, woohoo, you know, that kind of thing. I changed my mind. I'm doing something more educational, more important in my mind in this episode. I'm going to be talking about James Baldwin, his life, his writings, a little bit of everything about him. My introduction to James Baldwin was fairly recent, eh, kind of, sort of. I watched a documentary called I Am Not Your Negro, which is based on James Baldwin's unfinished manuscript for a book Baldwin was going to call Remember This House. Now, Baldwin died before he could finish the book. I Am Not Your Negro explores the history of racism in the United States through Baldwin's reminiscing about civil rights movement leaders, Medgar Evers, Martin Luther King Jr., and Malcolm X. The reminiscing parts of the movie are great. They're, it's really good. It, Baldwin offers insights into those three men that I've never heard before. I absolutely have not heard before. Where I think the movie really, really shines is when Mr. Baldwin is talking, just period, when he is speaking. The parts in the movie where James Baldwin talks about his thoughts on American history, he talks about how racism is inherently tied to American history. That essentially, if you're going to talk about American history, you have to talk about racism, specifically racism against blacks, along with any kind of American history discussion. And he's fucking 100% right. Hundred, you know, I hate that 110% shit, but no, no. He's 110% right. Absolutely. Now, by the way, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King Jr., were all murdered. Medgar Evers was killed in 1963, Malcolm X in 1965, and Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968. Those three were big leaders in the civil rights movement of the 1960s, and certain people definitely wanted them out of the picture. Certain extremely shitty people. God, what a fucking insane time that was. And, you know, uh, we're kind of looking at similar stuff going on right now, for sure, in some ways, in some ways. You might be asking, like, why am I doing an episode about James Baldwin? This is why. I recently have said that I was going to cover more subjects related to racism, specifically racism against black people in the United States. You know, good old-fashioned American racism, in other words. Um, there's nothing good about racism at all, but racism against black folks in the United States, uh, that's about as American as apple pie and fucking NASCAR. It really is. We have almost 500 years of history of more or less institutional, systematic racism against black people. Now, how much do I, myself, know about racism in the United States? How much do I know about slavery? How much do I know about the civil rights movement of the 1960s? Not much. Honestly, no, not much. Mostly what I know about it is what I was taught in school when I was a child through high school. Here's what they told us, you know, long time ago. White Americans brought slaves over from Africa. Okay. Lincoln freed the slaves. There's a war over that. Okay. Yep. Civil war. 
in the 1960s, there was a movement of people that wanted equal rights for black people. And that movement was led by Martin Luther King Jr. Someone killed Martin Luther King Jr. And racism in the United States was done with the killing of Martin Luther King Jr. Yes, everyone, white America, you know, pat yourself on the back. That was, you know, you ended racism by killing Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, yeah, yeah. They live a happily ever after, right? Isn't that kind of what we're told in school? Um, no, no, no. That's not true kind of at all. Racism is going very strong right now. Very, very strong. In fact, it seems to me, another thing I learned in school when I was a kid, learned about Harriet Tubman, the Underground Railroad, and that was in the third grade. And I, I still remember to this day, writing a book report about her and what she did. And that's great. No, no, really good. There's so much more to that history and that story that you're not told in school. It's a continuing story of racism and what it is to be black and to be an American. It's really fucking crazy. The year 1526 was the year the very first slaves came over to the shores of the continental United States from Africa. 1526. Wait a minute. The states weren't United States. When did the first colonists come? Like 1619 or 1609 or something? Jamestown, right? Um, how did they get here? 1526. Well, they were brought here by the Spanish, the first African slaves, and they were in South Carolina. And then in Florida, another round of slaves came over in 1565. Now, see? I didn't know any of that. I had no idea the Spanish brought slaves from Africa to the continental United States pre-colonies, pre-United States itself. Fucking crazy. And by the way, the slaves that they brought over, the Spanish brought over to South Carolina that first run in 1526, that colony, that Spanish colony, was devastated by disease. The Spanish were completely wiped out. The slaves that remained more or less integrated into local Native American tribes. And yeah, goddamn. I mean, that's bears looking into. That bears, that's something that you should be told or it should be talked about in school, right? You would think, I fuck, I never knew that. I never knew that until I started looking into and researching for this episode. Why not? Why didn't, why didn't they teach us any of that shit when we were in school? I think the simple version is this. I think that the people who wrote the history books the people that decide on curriculum in schools, the people in power in this country for the entire history of the United States really don't give two shits. They don't give two shits about the role of black people in the history of this country. They really don't. Or they've just, it's been kind of conveniently brushed under the rug, this history of black folks in the United States, because it's embarrassing and it makes white people look bad, historically speaking and currently speaking too. Because you know in you know, 10 years, 20 years maybe, that this era that we're living through right now in 2020 is for sure going to be talked about in history books. I hope so. I hope we have a history to talk about by that point. And they're going to say some bad, bad shit about white Americans. There's going to be, just like in the civil rights movement of the 1960s, there are some really great white Americans out there right now doing good work, doing the right thing helping out, helping end racism, for sure. There's an awful, awful lot of white people that want to maintain fucking racism. They want it to stay because it benefits them if they do. God, there's so much to it that I want to talk about. Let me keep going on some other stuff. I mean, it, 
Here's another question. Why did it take a video of George Floyd, of a black man being murdered in the fucking street by cops for so many people to rise up and take to the streets and say, you know, we're fucking, we're done. We're over this. I just think about George Floyd's murder that people are over it. People are like, this is, it's too much. It was a straw that broke the camel's back. It's too much. It's too much to bear. For black America, that shit, so many black people get killed by the police every fucking week. It's insane. It is absolutely insane. But that shit has been going on through the entire history of the United States of America, colonies, and before it was even anything, any kind of thought of like a a British colony. What I'd like you to do, I'd like you to do kind of a little exercise with me if you can, so we can kind of start to answer the question of how can we fix these problems? You know, how can we fix this all enveloping racism, this system of racism that's been built up for the last, you know, four or 500 years? Look in the mirror, look in the mirror, take a really, really, really fucking hard look at yourself. Do I do anything to fight racism? That's important. That's actually really important. Start there. I mean, I have been, and here we are. That's why I'm doing this. I'm trying to do something. I decided to use this platform that I have with the Bobcast to do some educational stuff, some educational work to amplify black culture, black voices, black history. In this episode, let's talk a little bit about history, specifically a black man who was very, very important to the history of the United States and the world in some ways, really. I do want to say this as well, and I've said this many times. This podcast is a big look at what's kind of going on inside of me, inside of my head. The things that I like, I talk about the things I like, things I care about, kind of who I am and my thirst of knowledge of of many different things. I have a lot of kind of different interests. That all reflects in this podcast and this episode and some of the episodes that are going to be coming out in the near future. It's all because of, it's me, it's what I want to do. Also, I feel like I do have this thirst for justice inside of me and not sound like some, some kind of fucking knight on in shining armor, riding in to save the day. Here I am. Bob's here to fix racism. No, no, no. You know, that's stupid. I'm going to do my part though, as much as I can. Anybody has any tips or advice or things they think I should be doing too. I've been working on that with some people that I know. I would appreciate any kind of knowledge or help or information you can send my way That helps me out immensely, immensely. So please email me anytime, get at me on social media, that kind of shit. Like I definitely will respond. I'm very responsive to people that talk to me, that reach out to talk to me, especially about things that are really important. So there you go. Another thing I want to say about myself real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to party with Bob. Bob can't stop fucking talking about Bob. Part of who I am is someone that does want to do the right thing. That wants to be part of the solution rather than the problem. And I feel very, very strongly about this. I am someone who wants to work towards ending racism, towards black people, towards anybody, really. But specifically right now, I'm focusing on racism towards black folks. Okay, stick with me. We'll learn a few things along the way we might not have known. Uh, Hopefully, we'll all grow a little bit as people. By doing so, we might be able to help break the chains of systematic and institutionalized racism against black people, people of color. Let's fix this shit. Let's fix it. Together, we can do it. On to the episode itself. This is how it's going to go. 
part one of this episode is going to cover kind of the life and the history of James Baldwin. Part two of the episode is going to be an actual speech by James Baldwin. This is his famous speech, The Free and the Brave, and that was from the year 1963. The music in this episode, the first song of the episode is coming right up, and it is by the Bull Weevils. That song is called 20-something, and I do want to say this too. Look for more coming soon from the Bull Weevils and Doc. We're making plans to do a couple of episodes with Dr. Daryl and the Bull Weevils. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm excited. It's going to be rad. Midway through the episode, in between kind of part one and part two, there's going to be a song by the band Kira Jari, and that song is called Old Definition of Insanity. The very last song of the episode is by Danny Denial, and that song is called Dead Like Me, and that is a fucking rad song all the songs on this episode are super rad the danny denial one really stands out it's it's different from what i normally play in some ways you'll you'll hear it god it's a fucking rad song i love it now i gotta say this all the songs that i'm playing on this episode do have something in common the bands or the, the performer in the case of danny denial all have members that are black now again it's kind of me looking in the mirror and saying have i ever had a band on any bobcast episode that had Members that were black. Have I ever interviewed a band that has members that are black? I no, no, I have not that I can think of. And what the fuck? What in the fuck? That's fucking weird to me. That's fucking crazy and really not too not cool. I think I I don't know. I'm not happy about that. That I've gone all, an entire year of podcast episodes and haven't had one member of one band that I've either either interviewed or played a song by that has a member that's black. It's fucking insane. Now, I do understand that black folks are underrepresented in the DIY punk scene, and that's most of the music that I do play. And I think it's it's not really debatable. I, I'm not that I'm trying to debate anybody or anything, but it's kind of a true thing, I would say, that black folks in DIY punk totally underrepresented. It's really, really interesting and strange. Here's something you can do right now. Name five punk bands that have black members or are mostly made up of black people that is not the band Bad Brains. Can you do it? Five. Five. That's your homework. Okay. Try and do that without Googling. You can't Google it. You got to do it from your head. I tried and I did. I was fine because I listen to all kinds of shit and I go, it wasn't too hard. But as far as smaller kind of like DIY punk bands, yeah, I did have to look into that because I didn't I didn't know the answer to that question. I could not answer that question. And let me say, too, I don't know that that's necessarily a purposeful thing. You know, it's not it's not like I was like, oh, nope, not going to have any bands that have black people on my show, on my podcast. No, fuck. No, 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 no. That wasn't the thought process at all. But thinking about it in some ways, does that say something about white privilege in some ways? Hmm, I don't know. It bears thinking about, I'm really like, that really threw me. That really fucked me up, you know, because it made me feel like I was a shithead. And maybe I am. Yeah, I am a shithead. Let me say this, though. I am going to be focusing more on bands that have black members or, I don't know, I have a lot of stuff planned. Stay with me. I have some really, really great stuff planned. Some very helpful, educational, and also entertaining things that we're going to talk about over the course of the rest of the fucking Bobcast, to be honest with you. So, yeah, stay with me. Stay with me. Here are a few words before we get to the main part of the episode about an organization that uses theater and the theater arts to make the world a better place. 
That organization is called the National Black Theater. Then we're going to hear the song 20-something by the Bull Weevils, and then we'll get to the episode itself. So stay tuned. The National Black Theater's core mission is this, to produce transformational theater that helps to shift the inaccuracy around African Americans' cultural identity by telling authentic stories of black lifestyle, to use theater arts as a means to educate, enrich, entertain, empower, and inform the national conscience around current social issues impacting our communities, and to provide a safe space for artists of color to articulate the complexity, beauty, and artistic excellence intrinsic in how we experience the world in the domain of acting, directing, producing, designing, playwriting, and entrepreneurial autonomy. The power to create change is yours. Become a hero of Dr. Barbara Ann Tier's National Black Theater and give a tax-deductible donation that helps make culture count in Harlem as National Black Theater continues to keep soul alive 50 years and counting. Your heroic donations give artists a place to create and the opportunity to experience our community in a new and transformational way. Join our drive to keep soul alive. We ask that you give generously, give the gift of inspiration. How can you donate to National Black Theater? You can visit www.nationalblacktheater.org forward slash donate and make a donation. Do it today. Thank you, National Black Theater, and thank you to the Bull Weevils for the song. I really do appreciate it. James Baldwin. Let's talk about the history of James Baldwin. 
James Baldwin was born on August 2nd, 1924 at Harlem Hospital in New York City in the neighborhood of Harlem, to be specific, if the name of the hospital didn't give that away. Uh, yes, uh, indeed. Okay. James's mother, Emma Burdish Jones, had left his biological father shortly before he was born and relocated to Harlem. She worked as a cleaning woman until James was three years old when she met and then married a Baptist preacher named David Baldwin. David had a child of his own as well, who was nine years older than James. So the kid was like 12, James is like three. Emma and David Baldwin had eight more children together. Eight kids, plus James and his very much older stepbrother. Holy shit, I have one kid, and I'm fucking going crazy with one kid. One kid, ten kids? My God. Yeah, moving on. David Baldwin was, let's say, uh, not so nice to James. It said he was much, much harder on James than the other nine children. From a very early age, James was different. He was gifted, super, super intelligent. What did James do to get away from this wicked stepfather? Well, he went to the library. Pretty cool, I think. Speaking of James Baldwin's childhood, this is what he had to say in his own words. I knew I was black, of course, but I also knew I was smart. I didn't know how I would use my mind or even if I could, but that was the only thing I had to use. So at a very early age, Baldwin started writing. At 10 and a half years old, James Baldwin wrote his first play and a teacher at his school read the script for the play, loved it, and directed it. They performed the play in his school that James wrote when he was 10 and a half years old. That's rad. That's crazy. Like what a... God, he was a smart dude. You'll see, James Baldwin, an incredibly, incredibly smart person. This same teacher, a white woman for the record, saw the potential in James and asked his parents if she could take him to a real play, take him to see a real play. His stepfather said no, no, because uh, his stepfather was a dick, apparently. James's mother overrode the wicked stepfather, saying, it would not be very nice to let such a kind woman make the trip for nothing. And that was said apparently when the teacher was at the house to pick James up to take him to this play, as far as I can tell. James Baldwin said his parents were scared of this white lady coming to pick up their child and take him to a play that, and I quote James Baldwin, it was clear during the brief interview in our living room that my father was agreeing very much against his will and that he would have refused permission if he had dared. The fact that he did not dare caused me to despise him. I had no way of knowing that he was facing in that living room a wholly unprecedented and frightening situation. This is in roughly 1934-1935. The racism in the United States against blacks by whites was in full, full fucking swing. I mean, full on swing. I imagine this is kind of me, you know, thinking about things. I imagine his parents had a bunch of reasons to be scared of this white lady taking their young child to a play. What would people think of a white lady and a 10-year-old black child going out to a play? Just the two of them. Could they trust this woman? I, they, I don't know. They didn't really know her. There's a lot of undertones here that I would think would be really, really gnarly for James's parents. A lot of things going in, on in their heads. You know, what are, what's her motivation, et cetera, et cetera. Well, James did go to that play, for the record. When James Baldwin was 13, he wrote his very first article, which was titled Harlem, Then and Now, and that article was published in his school's magazine. 
James didn't like school, for the record. He did not like it. And I, I wonder, was it because he was so smart, kind of like an Einstein kind of kid? He was an extremely smart man. Partly, I think, partly. Maybe that had something to do with it. James Baldwin himself says, because of all the racial slurs he had to endure while he was at school. Can you, can you imagine that? You go to school, you're getting called the racist bullshit names by teachers and staff and shit like that? I mean, as a white person, no, I can't because it didn't, it never happened to me. No, I'll leave it at that. Fuck it. Jesus Christ, man. Didn't like school because of all the racial slurs. Like, what fuck, what a fuck this world, man. Sometimes I'm sorry. Let's take a break for a second. Fuck this world and the shitty people that live in it. Sometimes I'm trying to do something to make the world a little bit of a better place with this episode and with future episodes and stuff like that. But goddamn. You read something like that, some poor little kid, dude. What the fuck? All right, let's keep going. Let's keep going. James Baldwin is rad. That's why I really want to talk about him. So I will forego the negativity for now. Let's talk about James here. When James was in high school, he converted to the Pentecostal church, and he even became a junior minister in that church. By the time he was 17, though, he bailed on the church accusing Christianity of reinforcing American slavery. You know, the whole, uh, you'll be free when you're dead. Oh, you'll be free of all this racism when you're dead. Uh, great. James Baldwin felt that the church was hypocritical, racist, and kind of a, like a big act or a big show. This is what he had to say of religion later on in his life. If the concept of God has any use, it is to make us larger, freer, and more loving. If God can't do that, it's time we got rid of him. Uh, Amen. Yes, good one, James Baldwin. Very, very good one. I am with you 100% on that. James graduated high school in 1942, kind of did some odd jobs to help his mother out as his stepfather died of tuberculosis in 1943. Later on in his life, Baldwin spoke of his days when he was working at a defense plant in New Jersey and then at a meatpacking plant in Manhattan where he said he encountered horrific racism. He said it was like, and I'm going to quote, some dread chronic disease, the unfailing symptom of which is a kind of blind fever, a pounding in the skull and a fire in the bowels. And I know, you know, I'm going to throw a little commentary in here for this too. I know working sucks. You know, working any job kind of really does suck. A lot of us have really shitty bosses, shitty coworkers, shitty customers, you name it. Throw into that mix being treated like total shit by racists to all that other shit you have to deal with at work. Imagine that. Imagine having to deal with racism at work day in and day out and how fucked that would be. God damn. Ugh, yeah. By the year 1945, James Baldwin had secured a fellowship for writing, which a fellowship for writing is essentially like a grant or money for some kind of a project, like a writing project. Then, in 1948, Baldwin bailed the United States of America. Goodbye and good riddance. He was bummed to be leaving his mother with all those kids that she had to take care of, and he was helping out in that respect. In fact, James Baldwin said he didn't have the courage to tell her he was leaving the United States until the very afternoon that he left. <laughs> so, yes, he was like, oh, boy, I don't want to tell her. She's not going to be happy. <laughs> Well, he left the United States for a couple of reasons. One reason is that when he was a teenager, Baldwin began to realize that he was gay, that he was a gay man. 
Another reason he wanted to leave the United States was to get away from American prejudice and American racism. He said he wanted to see himself outside the context of American prejudice as a writer and wanted to be read, and I quote, as not merely a Negro or even merely a Negro writer. James Baldwin moved to Paris, France on another writing fellowship he had secured for the record. Once he was there, Baldwin said this of being away from the United States. Only white Americans can consider themselves to be expatriates. Once I found myself on the other side of the ocean, I could see where I came from very clearly, and I could see that I carried myself, which is my home, with me. You can never escape that. I am the grandson of a slave, and I am a writer. I must deal with both. For the remainder of his life, Baldwin would live between two worlds, the United States and France. Baldwin returned to the United States in 1957, the year that the Civil Rights Act of 1957 was coming before Congress. Now, keep in mind, Brown versus the Board of Education had cleared the Supreme Court in 1954, and that was all about desegregating schools. So one of the factors that led to Baldwin coming back was he was especially moved by images of a young lady named Dorothy Counts that braved these gnarly racist mobs in North Carolina to go to school, part of the desegregation process, more or less. When he got back, when James Baldwin got back, he met Martin Luther King Jr. in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he wrote essays about the situation in the American South for several publications during that time. Here's where James Baldwin's involvement with the civil rights movement begins when he gets back to the States in 1957. Baldwin joined an organization called the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE. Quick note, though, CORE was part of the March on Washington in 1963 and the Freedom Summer of 1964. And those were big, huge milestones in the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Being part of CORE gave Baldwin the opportunity to speak and lecture all around the American South at the beginning of the 1960s, which led to quite a bit of mainstream press attention for Mr. Baldwin. Baldwin's unique analysis of white racism, his insights into the North and South of the United States, his kind of middle ground approach. He had this kind of middle ground approach that was between the pacifism of Martin Luther King Jr. and the, you know, just resist and fight kind of attitude of Malcolm X. That made him approachable to white Americans is what I think in some ways. And I think that consensus is shared amongst a lot of people who've studied him much, much more than I have. In fact, Time Magazine featured Baldwin on its cover in its May 17th, 1963 issue, and Time said this of James Baldwin, There is not another writer who expresses with such poignancy and abrasiveness the dark realities of the racial ferment in North and South. Now here's a little tidbit, and very much worth noting. In 1960, the FBI started keeping tabs on James Baldwin. In fact, by the early 1970s, the FBI had 1,884 pages of documents on James Baldwin. He was kind of a double threat. He was a gay man, and he was also involved in the civil rights movement. Hmm. Compare that 1,884 pages of documents the FBI had on Baldwin to the 110 pages the FBI had on Truman Capote, who was also a gay writer, and the nine pages, nine pages, they had on Henry Miller. Huh, 
Yeah, interesting. Make scratch your head a little on that one, huh? Let me say this too, real quick. Uh, with a capital F U C K. Fuck J Edgar Hoover. Fuck that dude to hell. Remember Cointel Pro? Yeah, Hoover also blocked the prosecutions of members of the KKK for like black church bombings in the '60s that fucking killed women and children and babies. And God, fuck that fucking dude, man. The FBI under Hoover even sent Martin Luther King Jr. a letter that urged him to commit suicide. Oh, yeah, that's nice, huh? Man, fuck that dude. The the FBI and Hoover in that day, oh, my God. Fucking horrendous. And not even to mention, you know, the anti-communist bullshit that they were about, blacklisting people left and right. During the Civil Rights Movement, they really stepped up their game and just got extra shitty. Um, God, fuck all of them. They're all, like, burning in this the hottest hell imaginable. That's the only thing that lets me sleep at night, by the way. I do want to mention something real quick, too. Kind of a sad note. Although Baldwin and Martin Luther King Jr. were acquainted, they knew each other, they weren't really friends, it seems that Martin Luther King Jr. really didn't want to be associated with James Baldwin because of the fact that James Baldwin was gay. I think Martin Luther King Jr. was a great man. Really, really great man in a lot of ways, but he wasn't cool with gay people. It's because of religion. At the time, they didn't want gay men in the civil rights movement. They, because a lot of them, a lot of the leaders of the civil rights movement were fairly religious in some ways, and they had a big problem with people being gay. And that's too fucking bad, man. That is too bad. Goddamn uh, religion. Yeah. Yikes. Baldwin was very, very active in the civil rights movement though he didn't want to be known as a civil rights activist. In 1979, at a speech at UC Berkeley, Baldwin referred to the civil rights movement of the 1960s as, I quote, the latest slave rebellion. He also felt that if you're a citizen, well, you shouldn't have to fight for civil rights. And he's right, you know, fuck, he is 100% right. James Baldwin was arguably in my mind, was one of the most important people involved in the civil rights movement of the 1960s and beyond. I think it's undeniable. Undeniable. Very few people could bridge the gap between blacks and whites the way that James Baldwin did. I think the world, honestly, was so, so much better off with him. And he changed things. I mean, he changed things so much for the better in so many ways. And one last thing about Baldwin's role in the civil rights movement, and these are in his own words. When he was asked if he was a spokesman for the civil rights movement in a New York Times book review interview in 1984, Baldwin said this, and I quote, a spokesman assumes that he is speaking for others. I never assumed that I could. What I tried to do or to interpret and make clear was that no society can smash the social contract and be exempt from the consequences. And the consequences are chaos for everybody in the society. I was a maverick. A maverick in the sense that I depended on neither the white world nor the black world. That was the only way I could have played it. I would have been broken otherwise. I had to say a curse on both your houses. The fact that I went to Europe so early is probably what saved me. It gave me another touchstone, myself. By the 1970s, Baldwin was back in France, though he did move back and forth between the United States and France throughout the 70s and 80s. Kind of, he kind of, he, he, commuted between France and the United States. Interesting. Baldwin continued writing and lecturing during that time up until he passed away of stomach cancer on December 1st, 1987, 
in St. Paul de Vence, France. At James Baldwin's funeral, his dear friend and fellow author, Toni Morrison, said this in his eulogy. You knew, didn't you, how I needed your language and the mind that formed it. How I relied on your fierce courage to tame wildernesses for me. How strengthened I was by the certainty that came from knowing you would never hurt me. You knew, didn't you, how I loved your love. You knew. This then is no calamity. No, this is jubilee. Our crown, you said, has already been bought and paid for. All we have to do is wear it. And we do, Jimmy. You crowned us. Those are powerful, powerful words. Now, here are a few words about the organization showing up for racial justice. And then the song, Old Definition of Insanity by the band Kira Jari. Please stay tuned. Showing up for racial justice's role as part of a multiracial movement is to undermine white support for white supremacy and to help build a racially just society. That work cannot be done in isolation from or disconnected from the powerful leadership of communities of color. It is one part of a multiracial, cross-class movement centering people of color leadership. Therefore, Showing Up for Racial Justice believes in resourcing organizing led by people of color and maintaining strong accountability relationships with organizers and communities of color as central part of our theory of change. Showing Up for Racial Justice believes that we must ground our organizing in a framework of mutual interest. White supremacy is integral to economic injustice, to maintaining patriarchy, and other forms of oppression. Racism and white supremacy keep the many divided for the benefit of the few. We must have an inclusive, open-hearted approach to organizing, calling people into this work rather than creating barriers to participation while maintaining a clear political line. When those of us who are white realize that racial justice is core to our liberation as well, then masses of white people will withdraw support from white supremacy. Together, as part of a powerful, multiracial, cross-class movement for collective liberation, we can force the system of white supremacy to crumble. In order to activate this theory of change, we employ three core strategies. Delegitimize racist institutions. Fight for a fair economy that refuses to pit communities against each other. And shift culture, meaning the underlying beliefs folks have about people in the world, in a way that undermines support for white supremacy. These strategies are dependent on multiracial organizing and a specific focus on deepening, amplifying, and centering the leadership and organizing of poor and working class folks, rural communities, and the U.S. South. Within this framework, our network is using a number of tactics, including leading and participating in campaigns, base building, direct action, relationship building, communications work, and more. You can help by visiting www.showingup.com for racialjustice.org forward slash donate dash to dash S-U-R-J and making a donation or just go to the Showing Up for Racial Justice website and check things out. There is a vast array of resources available to you for anti-racist work and more on the website. Check it out today.
Okay, so there was a very condensed version of the life and doings of James Baldwin. I'm sure I missed some key events that he was part of. I'll say this now and I'll say this later. Read about James Baldwin. Read his books. Watch a documentary about him. Listen to some of his lectures or speeches. Holy shit. The man is absolutely amazing. Speaking of speeches of James Baldwin, let's hear one of his speeches. Let's hear from the man himself. What's coming up next is a speech that James Baldwin gave at the Second Baptist Church in Los Angeles in 1963. This speech has been titled The Free and the Brave. I cut out the question and answer session that was at the very end of the speech itself, just in the interest of time, more or less. The full speech with that Q&A is available online easily. I found this on YouTube. It is supposed to be royalty-free, you know, public domain, that kind of thing. I hope so, because I don't want to get this episode taken down. So if you're listening, Apple Podcasts or, who, you know, of all the different providers that I go through, which is like all of them pretty much, uh, yes, the speech is public domain. There you go. Here it is. Take a listen to it. James Baldwin, The Free and the Brave, from the year 1963. Enjoy. I want you... To somehow make a certain leap with me, because I have one more quotation I want to give you. And this comes from Nietzsche. It comes from Thus Spake Thousandstra, I think. But it's been in my mind all week long. At some point, the man says, I stand before my highest mountain. And before my longest journey, and therefore must I descend deeper than I have ever before descended. Now, there's several thousand things that one has got to say in the context that we're speaking, out of which we're speaking. And I suppose the first thing that I have to suggest is that one consider the fact that in the life of a man, the life of a woman, in anybody's life, there are several elements always at work. But the crucial element I want one to, one to consider here is that element of a life which we consider to be an identity. The way in which one puts oneself together, the way one imagines oneself to be, the reality, for example, the invented reality, standing before you now, arbitrarily called Jimmy Baldwin, who contains a great many other things. We have agreed, we have succeeded in striking a certain kind of bargain with the world, this is his name, and this is what he does, and this is who he is. Okay, but that's not it. Beneath that, forever, for everybody, is something else. Is a stranger, the stranger with whom one is forced to deal day in and day out. Forced, in fact, to discover. Forced, in fact, to create, as distinct from invent. 
Life demands of everyone a certain kind of humility. The humility to be able to make the descent that Nietzsche was talking about. There, is, there are two ways, I think. I think there are two ways only to achieve a life or a nation. Let us consider, I'll be personal because I think it may be the easiest way for me to say it and the whole business of communication or communion really is to find some common term to make something mean to you some roughly what it means to me. In my life, as I am sure in your life, when one is young, one supposes that there is some way to avoid disaster. If I can spell that out, I mean that when one is young, when I was a little boy, for example, I used to tell my mother, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there. I'm going to be right, I'm going to be fireman. I'm going to do, 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 be this. And Mama would look at me and she would say, it's more than a notion. It took me a long time, a very long time, to begin to realize that she was right and begin to realize what she meant. I, like all of us, thought I knew what I wanted and thought I knew who I was and thought that I could do it and we all do this, whatever it was I wanted, wherever I wanted to go, I thought that I could do it <coughs> without paying my dues. Because of all the things that one cannot imagine, especially when one's young, is how to pay your dues. You're, you don't even know there are dues to be paid. <laughs> and later on, one begins to discover, and with great pain, and very much against one's will, that if you want something, whatever it is you want, and whatever it is you want at bottom must be to become yourself. There is nothing else to want. Whatever that is, however, whatever that journey is, one's got to accept the fact that disaster is a condition under which you will make it, the journey I mean, not make it in the American sense. <laughs> and you learn a certain humility because the terms that you've invented, which you think describe and define you, inevitably collide with the facts of life. And when this collision occurs, and make no mistake, this is an absolutely inevitable collision. When this collision occurs, like two trains in a tunnel, one's got the choice, and it's a very narrow choice, of holding on 
to your definition of yourself, or saying as the old folks used to say, and as everybody who wants to live has to say, yes, Lord, which means to say yes to life. Until you can do that, you have not become a man or a woman. Now in this country, part of the dilemma, which could become a tragedy, of being what is known somewhat arbitrarily as an American, The collective effort, until this moment, and the collective delusion, until this moment, has been precisely my delusion when I was a little boy, that you could get what you wanted and become what you said you were going to be, painlessly. Furthermore, if one examines for a second, or if one tries to define the proper noun American, one will discover, first of all, that to be an American means a catalog of virtues. We have something called I Am an American Day, which I gather is meant to reassure everybody. <laughs> and to be an American in these terms apparently means, check me out, you think about it. Apparently means that though Greeks, Armenians, Turks, Frenchmen, Englishmen, Scotch, Scotsmen, Italian, may be corrupt, sexual, unpredictable, lazy, evil, a little lower than the angels, <laughs> we are not. <laughs> quite overlooking the fact that the country was settled by Englishmen, Scots, Germans, Turks, and Armenians, a little later to be sure. Every nation under heaven is here. And not, after all, for a very long time. I think that it might be useful in order to survive our present crisis to do what any individual does, is forced to do, to survive his crisis.
which is to look back on his beginnings. The beginnings of this country, it seems to be, it's a banality to say it, but alas, it has to be said. The beginnings of this, of this country have nothing whatever to do with the myth we have created about it. The country did not come about because a handful of people in Europe, various parts of Europe, said, I want to be free, and probably built a boat or a raft <laughs> and crossed the Atlantic Ocean. Not at all. Not at all. In passing, let me remark that the word liberty, the word freedom, are terribly misused words. Liberty is a fact which is also used as a slogan, and freedom may be the very last thing that people want, the very last thing. Anyway, the people who settled the country, the people who came here, came here for one reason, no matter how disguised. They came here because they thought it would be better here than where they were. That's why they came. And that's the only reason that they came. Anybody who was making it in England <laughs> did not get on the Mayflower. <laughs> this is important. It is important that one begin to recognize this because part of the dilemma of this country is that it has managed to believe the myth it has created about its own past, which is another way of saying that it has entirely denied its past. And we all know, if we think about it, what happens to a person who was born, let us say, where I was born, in Harlem, and goes to the world pretending he was born in Sutton Place. How odd this may sound. Also happens to a nation, a nation being, when it finally comes into existence, the achievement of the people who make it up. And the quality of the nation being absolutely at the mercy, defined, dictated by the nature and the quality of the people who make it up. In this extraordinary endeavor to create the country called America, A great many crimes were committed. 
And I want to make it absolutely clear, or as clear as I can make it, that I understand perfectly well that crime is universal and common. And I trust that no one will assume that I am indicting or accusing. I'm not any longer interested in the crime. People treat each other very badly and always have and very probably always will. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about denying what one does, which is a much more sinister matter. We did several things in order to conquer the country. There was, at the point we reached these shores, a group of people who had never heard of machines, or as far as I know, of money. I think we would call them now a backward nation. And we promptly eliminated them. We killed them. I'm talking about the Indians, in case you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, people have done this for centuries. But I hazard, I'll bet you, as you say in Harlem, a fat man, that not many American children being taught American history have any real sense of what that collision was like or what we really did, how we really achieved the extermination of the Indian. what that meant. And it is interesting to consider that very few social critics, none to my knowledge, but I say very few, have begun even to analyze the hidden reasons that the cowboy and Indian legend is still one of the most popular legends in American life, so popular that it still, 1963, dominates the television screen. And I suppose, to finish off that particular item or to close it for the moment, that all those cowboy and Indian stories <coughs> are designed to reassure us that no crime was committed. <laughs> We've made a legend out of a massacre. In which connection, if I may for a moment, digress. There used to be an old joke running around among Negroes. If you remember the Lone Ranger, I think he had a, I think he had a sidekick called Tonto, an Indian. There's always a good Indian. He rode around with, <laughs> he rode, he rode around with the Lone Ranger, and according to my version of the story, the version I heard, um, Tonto and the Lone Ranger ran into this ambush of nothing but Indians. And the Lone Ranger said, what are we going to do, Tonto? And Tonto said, what do you mean, we?
than slavery, like murder, is one of the oldest human institutions. So we cannot quarrel about the fact of slavery. That is to say we could, but that's, that's another story. But we enslaved him because in order to conquer the country, we had to have cheap labor. And the man who is now known as the American Negro, who is one of the oldest of American citizens, and the only one who never wanted to come here, Did the dirty work. Hold the cotton. Did you hold cotton? No. Chopped cotton, whatever you do with cotton. Pick <laughs> cotton. Lined track. Helped, in fact, I think it is not too strong a statement to say. But let me put it this way. Without his presence, without that strong back, the American economy, the American nation, would have had a vast amount of trouble creating its capital. If, then, if one had not had cat tilting the bar to listen to the bales, as we put it. It would be a very different country, and it would certainly be much poorer. And that's all right. But the people I am speaking of who settled the country had a fatal flaw. They could see, they could recognize a man when they saw one. They knew he wasn't, I mean, you can tell. They knew he wasn't anything else but a man. But since they were Christian, and since they had already decided that they came here to establish a free country, and some of them really meant it, by the way. The only way to justify the role this chattel was playing in one's life was to say that he was not a man. Because if he wasn't a man, then no crime had been committed. That is the basis, that lie is the basis 
of our present trouble, because that is an extremely complex lie. If on the one hand, one man cannot avoid recognizing another man, it is also true then, obviously, that the man, the black man, who was in captivity and treated like an animal and told that he was one, knew that he was a man and knew that something was wrong. When we got here, those of us who survived the Middle Passage, let me tell you a very small anecdote. I was in Dakar about a year ago in Senegal. And just off Dakar, there is a very small island called Gore, which was once the property of the Portuguese. And it's simply a rock with a fortress. It is the nearest, from Africa, the nearest point to America. On this island, my sister and I went to this island. They had something called the slave house. And we went there to visit it. And the house is not terribly large, looks a little like houses you see in New Orleans. <laughs> it's the truth. <laughs> it's about two stories, courtyard, staircase on each side, stone staircase. And the bottom section, which is the first story, I assume that the captains and the slavers were upstairs. Downstairs were the slave quarters, which were you walk through a kind of archway. On either side of you, very dark, very low, and this is made of stone, were a series of cells on either side. Stone floor, still rusted iron in the walls. It seemed to me this may be my imagination, but it seemed to me that I could still smell it, what it must have smelled like with all those human beings chained together in such a place. And I remember they could not speak to each other because they didn't come from the same tribe. On either side, as I say, we have the in this corridor, there are the cells. But straight ahead of you, you're coming through this, this archway, and straight ahead of you is a very much smaller doorway made of stone, which opens on the sea. You go to the edge of the door, and you look down, and at your feet are some black stones in the form of the Atlantic Ocean bubbling up against you. And the day that I was there, that we were there, I tried, but it's impossible. Because the ocean is just the horizon. 
I tried to imagine what it must have felt like to find yourself chained and speechless, no serious sense of that word, on your way where? You are listening to The Free and the Brave, a speech by James Baldwin on From the Vault. For more information or to get a copy of this program or other programs in this series, visit us online at fromthevaultradio.org or call us toll-free at 1-800-735-0230. You can research our collection at pacificaradioarchives.org. And now back to our program. In this next segment, we listen to author James Baldwin field questions from the Congregation of the Second Baptist Church in Los Angeles, April 1963. It was the black man's necessity, once he got here, to accept the cross, to somehow manage to outwit his Christian master, because what he faced when he got here was really the Bible and the gun. And that's all right, too. What is terrible in it is the fact that American white men are not prepared, first of all, to believe, for example, my version of this story, to believe that it happened. In order to avoid believing that, they have set up in themselves a fantastic system of evasions, denials, and justifications, which destroyed, or is about to destroy, their grasp of reality, which is another way of saying their moral sense. What I'm trying to say is that the crime is not the most important thing here. What makes our situation serious is that we have spent so many generations pretending that it did not happen. If you doubt me, ask yourself on what assumption rests, on what assumptions rest those extraordinary questions that white men ask. No matter how politely, on what assumption rests the question, would you let your sister marry? <laughs> it's based on some preoccupation in somebody's mind. God knows, you know, I have never given any evidence of having a particular problem. I'm not interested in marrying your sister, my God. <laughs> I mean that. On what assumption, on what assumption, again, rests the extraordinary question what does a Negro want? This again, 
comes out of some extraordinary preoccupation in the mind. Something entirely, if I may say so, divorced from reality. It's like saying, what do seals eat or, I don't know. It's as unreal as unreal can be. When a baby cries, you don't ask the baby what it wants. You find out, you know, you change the baby's diaper. That's what you do, you know. You don't run to your next door neighbor and say, what does my baby want? <laughs> now let's go back for a minute to where I started. Let's go back to Nietzsche. I stand before my highest mountain and before my longest journey and therefore must I descend deeper than I've ever before descended. And we spoke a little earlier about the necessity when the collision between your terms and life occurs of saying yes to life. That's the descent. The difference between a boy and a man is that a boy imagines there is some way to get through life safely. And a man knows he's got to pay his dues. In this country, the entire nation has always assumed that I would pay their dues for them. What it means to be a Negro in this country is that you represent, you are the receptacle of, you are the vehicle of all the pain, disaster, and sorrow which white Americans think they can escape. This is what is meant, really what is meant, by keeping the Negro in his place. It is why white people, until today, are still astounded and offended if by some miscalculation they are forced to suspect that you are not happy in your place. <laughs> this is absolutely true, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about the Deep South. People finally say to you, but you're so bitter. country for a dangerously long time. Two levels of experience. One, to put it cruelly, 
but I think quite truthfully, can be summed up in the image of Doris Day and Gary Cooper. I think you know, I think you know what they do. And the other, subterranean, indispensable, but denied, which can be summed up, let us say, in the tone of Ray Charles. And there's never been in this country any real confrontation between these two realities. Let me force you, or try to force you, to observe a paradox. Though all, all white Americans, in essence, essentially came from Europe, it is only American Negroes whom Europe understands. Let me spell that out. When American Negroes in Europe he and the people whom he finds himself among are able to establish a dialogue which white Americans have great difficulty establishing if they ever do. And the reason is very simple. The European and the black American know what it is to suffer. And Americans don't. Now the bill for this endeavor to get from the cradle to the grave, looking like Eisenhower, has now come in. White people are astounded by Birmingham. Black people aren't. White people are endlessly demanding to be reassured that Birmingham is really on Mars. <laughs> they don't want to believe, still less to act on the belief, that what is happening in Birmingham, now I mean this, and I am not exaggerating, there are several thousand ways to kill a man. There's several, several thousand ways to be violent. They don't want to realize that there is not one step, one inch, morally or actually, there is no distance between Birmingham and Los Angeles. entirely possible that we may all go under but until that happens I prefer to believe that since a society is created by men it can be remade by men the price for this transformation is high.
white people will have to ask themselves precisely why they found it necessary to invent a nigger. Because they invented him for reasons out of necessities of their own. And every white citizen of this country will have to accept the fact that he is not innocent because those dogs and those hoses, those crimes are being committed in your name. Black people Well, we have to do something very hard too, but they've done it, some of it already, which is to allow the white citizen his first awkward steps toward maturity. But we have functioned in this country precisely that way for a very long time. We were the first psychiatrists in this country. <laughs> if we can hang on just a little bit longer, all of us, we may make it. We've got to try. And I think that those are the conditions. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening up to this point. I do want to note again, that was a very, very condensed history of James Baldwin and that full, the free and the brave speech at the very end. I also didn't mention, you know, thanks to showing up for racial justice earlier for those words. And thanks to Kira Jari for letting me use that song. Absolutely fantastic song. I love it. Do yourself a favor. I really do want to stress this. Check out James Baldwin. Get, look into him. Read his books. Watch some of those lectures and speeches. They're all over YouTube for sure. Watch a documentary about him. I'm Not Your Negro is the best documentary I've seen in my entire life. Absolutely fantastic. Whatever. Just look into him a little bit more. He's fascinating. He was a hell of a person. He really was. His words were fire. And those words can burn you to ashes. But like a phoenix, you can rise. Ooh, I throw a little uh, Maya Angelou in there at the end, didn't I? Uh, who was, by the way, a very good friend of Mr. James Baldwin. Yes, indeed. I'll put some links up on the podcast website to where you can get to some of James Baldwin's works, like where you can find his books, where you can see those speeches. I'll put a couple up on the site, links to the YouTube speeches, that kind of thing. I hope you learned something in this episode. I did. I really, really did. And I have a very strong desire to get more into subjects like this, related to this. I think one thing I'd like to note, really, so many people are saying right now, and this is important, so many people are saying it's not enough to just not be racist. It's time to be actively 
strongly anti-racist. And I hope this episode helped with that in some way. That was kind of the whole purpose in a lot of ways. Showing up for racial justice, that organization that we heard from in this episode, that could be a good way, if you're a white person, to learn some things about being actively anti-racist. You might want to check them out. I'm going to. I'm definitely going to look into them some more. I'll report back later on what I find and what they have to offer. It seems like a great organization to me. Thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. A huge, huge thanks to the Ball Weevils, Kira Jari, and Danny Denial, who's coming up soon for all the music. Huge from the heart. Incredible, incredible man, James Baldwin. Thank you so much for your bravery, your strength, your kindness, your righteous anger, and your desire for justice. Sadly, you're gone. Never forgotten. Thank you for listening to this episode. Don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review the Bobcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, get out there. Get active, whether it's protesting, donating, educating. Use your voice, and more importantly, amplify the voices of the black communities that are calling out for justice and equality. Keep fighting. It's not going to be easy, but together we can do it. We can absolutely change the world. We can do it. Here's Danny Denial with the song, Dead Like Me. Now I'm stuck in another miserable state. I think there's gotta be yeah, someone.
Like me, yeah. I think there's gotta be.